Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Cup Duet Reviews. I hope everyone is doing so swell. My name is Jillian Robinson. I am the associate producer here at Cup of Hemlock Theatre, and I am joined by the incredible co-artistic producer, Ryan Barakovich. How are you doing, Ryan? I'm doing well, Jill. How are you? I'm doing swell. I like that. That's my kind of my word for tonight. Thank you for asking. Today, we are unpacking a fabulous production that is on one of our stages here in Toronto right now. We are going to be unpacking the Canadian premiere of Yerma by Simon Stone after Federico Garcia Lorca, directed by Diana Bentley. And we have Sarah Gaydon as our leading role, along with many other fabulous actors that we will dive into as the conversation gets flowing. But speaking of flowing, we have to talk about what is in our cup. So, Ryan, what is in your cup? Um, so we are recording this late in the evening, right after coming back from the theater. So I didn't want anything caffeinated. So I'm just drinking water. But I have it in this Canadian Tire 100th anniversary cup that your parents gave me as a stocking stuffer this holiday season. But I just thought because of all the Canadianisms that this production peppered into a very British adaptation of a very Spanish play, I felt like this was an appropriate choice of mug for this particular review. And we'll talk more about that in a bit. What's in your cup? I love that. What an appropriate way of using the Canadian tire mug that is randomly gifted to you. You're like, hey, this is a play we can use it for. I am just drinking some water. I'm feeling Ryan and I went out for dinner at the Firkin on Danforth right across from Coal Mine Theater, feeling a bit of the salty aftermath of a wonderful dinner. So I got some water in my little David's tea cup that has a tree on it. So I thought that would be a wonderful sort of symbol to pepper in. Very appropriate. There uh, we go. Before we dive too far into the play itself, I do want to just shout out Coal Mine Theater's new location. Woohoo! Located on the Danforth. I'm going to give you the proper numerical address because they have been saying in their emails if you take an Uber or you drive, make sure you're putting in the numerical address because some of the GPS map systems have not taken away the old address. So it is 2076 Danforth Avenue. It is the corner of Danforth and Woodbine, right across from Woodbine Station too. So if you don't drive and you want to take transit, bam, accessible right outside of the subway station. Also, can we just say how impressive it is that they are already up and running in a new space? They had their very horrible fire in the old venue back in September. And what is it now? February? I don't know how time works. But that feels very soon. And like, it's just so impressive. It's a testament to the community that rallied behind them, the donors that were willing mm-hmm. to support them. They recognize the importance of this institution, even though it is actually one of our younger big theater companies in the city and certainly one of the younger venues right. that, you know, it's obviously terrible what happened at the old space. As I mentioned in our previous Yerma review, very ironic that the last show they did in there was Detroit, which has a large climactic fire scene. Bad omen, who's to say, but yes, very impressive. They have this new space. And yeah, it's a delightful space. Do you want to talk about your experience of the spatiality of this production and venue? Sure. Yeah, I just love that we walked in and I smelled like fresh paint and construction (laughs) smells. I love those I like went up to our box office and was like, oh, it smells so new in here. Yeah, I think it's lovely. It's a lovely black box space. Again, we'll get into this, but this production was orchestrated in the round. So that was kind of neat to see that as this space is first set up, there was lovely like kind of gold kind of reminding me of chandelier-esque paint trim up 
like at the top of the walls is bleeding into the ceiling. Thought it was just a wonderful pop of texture and gold contrast to our black that you're just kind of, oh, you kind of, you could miss it or you could see it. Yeah. And again, we'll get into the set formation as we start talking about the piece in particular, but there's a lovely little bar with a variety of alcoholic and non-alcoholic drink options. Their bathroom space is super lovely. There's three sort of fully closed door stalls. Yeah. I guess we're really talking about the ins and outs of the (laughs) venue. It's a new venue. I like just like the old coal mine. You have to go down a flight of stairs to get to the theater. Mm -hmm. So it does have that like literal coal mine feel. Not that you feel like your life is in peril by going down there but it is very much we are descending into the depths and we will you know like a crucible that theater is we'll see how we come out on the other side when we return to the surface world it feels very apropos right so yeah you're giving a lot of you know going into the depths and surfacing Mm. and planting and unearthing let's dive in ryan i'm gonna volley can you give our viewers and listeners a little synopsis of yerma okay so I guess just as a blanket statement before I get too far into this, this is a 2016, I believe, adaptation of a play from the 1930s. The original Yerma, written by Federico Garcia Lorca, is this Spanish tragic drama set in rural Spain that has, you know, we won't necessarily get into too much details of that because this is a very different play. But in 2016, Simon Stone, a British playwright and director, came up with this very bold, very radical adaptation that isn't by Lorca, it is after Lorca, and definitely takes big liberties with the plot and the writing and so much of all of that. So this is the Canadian premiere of that specific adaptation, and it is to a T very close in spirit to that adaptation, with the one significant writing change just being that a lot of the British slang and geography and references have all been turned into Canadian slang geography and references there. It is set in Toronto and that's, there's a lot of Torontoisms in there again. That's my And honestly, specifically Leslieville too, Mm -hmm. its coal mine is located. Yeah. In and around there. Yeah. This whole very East end Toronto feel. I I love it. I, yeah. So I guess just very short version. You can see a whole review we did of the national theater live pro shot of the original Young Vic production of Simon Stone's adaptation. We released that last week in anticipation for this production, so we could kind of get that out of the way. And as a result, we're probably not going to necessarily dive too deep into the plot and the themes and the dramaturgy. You can see all of that stuff, our thoughts about the adaptation in that previous episode. Well, my thoughts and other friends of ours who we invited onto that panel. You watched that production, Jill, but you were not present yeah. on that panel. You busy actor who doesn't have time to be on every single episode. Shame on you. You'll plug the shows you're currently working on at the end. But yes, th- so this is that same show. If you watched that show or watched our review of it or both, you are in very much in store for just a Canadian version of the same. But short version of the plot, it is about a woman who is oddly enough and oddly enough, not named Yerma. She is credited in the program as her. That is just a pronoun of a name. The title of the play is Yerma, but whereas the character in the original Lorca play is named Yerma, the same is not the case in Stone's adaptation. She's just her, and she is in a relationship with a man named John. At the beginning, they get married over the course of the play. I don't know how much spoilery we're getting into already in this instance, but yes, she's in a relationship with a man named John, and she 
is desperate to have a child and they have just purchased a house together at the beginning of the play. And soon after that big life event, she decides that it's time for me to have a baby. This is what I want more than anything in the world. Mm-hmm. And again, no big spoilers at this stage, but it is about the great lengths and struggles and hardships that come with her difficulties at achieving that goal and mm-hmm. tied up with many themes of gender and animalistic sociality we could get into more but maybe just for a non-spoiler teaser if that sounds like a good time to you (laughs) good time is an interesting choice of words but you should check it out it's an interesting show very interesting adaptation this you can watch the original british production on national theater at home but this is a great way to see it if you're in toronto in your own backyard and localized to our own cultural milieu yes exactly i don't know if i want to add anything more without kind of giving spoilers i think you did yeah like a really good synopsis for us i guess this no maybe this is a spoiler so maybe i guess we should put up what should we put up as our spoiler image usually we try to talk about it in advance but maybe we'll do like a spoiler tree a spoiler tree spoiler tree is gonna grow onto the screen spoil (laughs) from the soil and We're in. Okay, we are in the spoiler garden. Yeah, I guess I was going to talk about the set and like the minimalism of the piece. I don't know if do we want to start there? Yeah, go for it. Yeah. So basically, so this, like I said earlier, it's in the round. So well, the square or the rectangle, like audiences. We all know our theater terminology. Audiences are on all four sides. And basically you enter the space and there is like kind of black aisleways but then it sort of looks like a pool but it's like a white sort of dug in like an in-ground pool basically but it's just white with like little steps on each of the rectangles vertices and that is the play space so you're kind of opened into the theater with just this white kind of in-ground pool blankness and then as the piece goes on I've said this a lot on our panels I love when props and set is very minimalist and it really is just the acting that thrives and is the heartbeat of the piece and that you're not kind of getting bogged down by large sort of scenic moments and that's for this piece that was that for me like every scene had just a couple of props or like a pop of costume to sort of get the audience in a semblance of the scene that we're in, but it certainly didn't give you any more than that. So it also kind of made the audience have to paint pictures alongside that. I'm thinking of the wonderful scene with Victor and her when he has like his bike and they're outside and he had just, he says like he had just biked a 30 kilometer route before seeing her. And it's like, There's a lot of outside scenes where this production, in contrast to the National Theatre one, they didn't have grass or anything. So you really did, with the gobo and the lights and stuff, you did have to do that kind of imagination, like, yeah, magic realism kind of on the stage. Envision house pieces, envision their other plants around. But it really helped you to laser focus on the setting doesn't really matter. It's the themes and the conversations that are had that I love when pieces are like that. I also, I love the fluidity in which the actors use the space. This might be, I'll, I'm going to volley like scene to you in a second, but after that, I, I definitely want to talk about the blackouts, but I guess, do you have anything you want to say about? Yeah. So and all that? It, it's interesting. I feel like, I don't know, obviously the National Theatre Young Vic production is fresh in my head. 
And so I don't want so much of this review to just be being like, well, in this version, they did this. In this version, they did this. What do we think of this comparison as I want to do? But it's interesting because something that I really loved about the set wasn't even just the theater magic of this imaginative space. But as much as I loved the glass walls that were very important in the other production, I'm glad that they didn't do it here because Mm -hmm. I feel like that would have been just very like, oh, yeah, doing that other show or the other production. This is the way to do it. I like like having not read the script of Stone's adaptation, I like that that's not something that's necessarily like baked into the writing of it, that all productions must be in a glass box because you don't throw your stones. Like that could have been a thing just dramaturgically ingrained into this is the way you do this show. Mm-hmm. But I like that it has the freedom to not do that. And I admire Diana Bentley as the director, her choice and the set designer whose name I did not commit to memory. We want to look up here. Caitlin Hickey. Caitlin she did Hickey. set and lighting. Beautiful. And those, there was a good symbiosis there that we could talk about in a moment. But yeah, I like, yes, Caitlin Hickey and Diane Bentley just as direct, as set designer and director. I think they made the wise choice to do away with the glass walls, but it still had that very sanitized feel of, mm-hmm. you know, you are surrounded on all sides by the audience. This is such a small venue. It's a very intimate space that you're not escaping from the gaze of the audience, even if they never yeah. quite break the fourth wall to acknowledge it that we don't need the literal glass to get the feeling that these people are under a microscope. And I think that Mm -hmm. served it very well. The funny thing about the set, because it is a very small, intimate space, as before the show, as we had taken our seats and other people are trickling in, one person almost tripped and fell, well, did fall into this little sunken, like, in-ground swimming pool space, which... Yikes, I'm glad they were okay. And you know, that could have ended very badly, but they landed on their feet. It was all okay. It was more of their embarrassment than anything. But mm-hmm. but yeah, it's it really is. You are right there in with it, I think is mm-hmm. why I'm bringing up this little anecdote that if I had stepped out of my seat, we were in the front row of this in the round setting. If I had stepped out of my seat and taken two steps forward, I would have been sunken yeah. into the set with the actors, but I would not do that because I'm a good spectator who doesn't disrupt the performance. Yeah. And, and it also makes me think, oh, sorry, did you want to jump in on there? No, it's okay. I was going to segue, take us kind of to our next point. So go ahead. Yeah. Well, just one last thing. And this goes back to the newness of this venue, because this is the first show that literally anybody is seeing in this space. We we talked about this a little like before the show began, but I wonder what that sunken stage, like how they created this debate, you know, is that something that's always going to be like a trapdoor that exists in this space? Or is the bottom level they were standing on actually the main ground level and that the audience was on like even the bottom row of audience was on one level of risers already to create that illusion. I guess we'll right. have to see another show at this venue in order to judge no. if that's going to be Pull the my case. arm. It's Pull so my close arm to see. <laughs> yes. But um, I, I just thought that was a neat thing to consider about this because it is the first time anyone is seeing any show at this yeah. space. So we don't know what the default normal of it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just to kind of, yeah, to go by and to, I think this, again, talking about Caitlin Higgins is going to blend really well into this. So with this super intimate space, you have the actors entering and exiting only on the vertices of this rectangle and having to navigate the steps. We love glow tape. Mm-hmm. We love glow tape and we love our ASMs and we love our stage managers for giving us glow tape. And like, yeah, I was like, we love glow tape because not only do, you know, the actors strike these little micro scenes that is what Yerma is, a little vignette sort of filmic-esque scenes. They're striking everything to set up for the next one, but it is very much a like snap your fingers, blink awake, and you're absolutely enveloped into the next atmosphere. So you don't see 
any of the movement happening. You maybe see like a silhouette of a body of like, oh, an actor is on the space. But like, you don't know that the actor is Martha Burns, like scrubbing the stairs because now they're inside a house and she's doing housework after you just had a conversation outside. Like it, that to me was magical and very fluid. And I just want to also just give like technical safety props to to all of the actors that navigated that space beautifully and the coordinating and choreography that that took. You all did wonderful work. That's the stage manager and me being like, yes, we love it. Safety and fluidity. So with that, so as I kind of just said, this piece is has little kind of filmic vignettes that give us the story of Yerma's life in chunks. If you, again, I'm, I'm comparing just because we watched the pro shop version of the National Theater one in between each of these vignettes, we were given a timeline, a time frame of how many years or months have passed with this production, seeing it at coal mine, we just had blackout. And then we were enveloped into whenever was the next time. And like yeah. Ryan and I didn't memorize. We're like, oh, this must be the vignette where it's two and a half years from like, <laughs> but it's interesting. And maybe you can talk about this, Ryan, too. Like I wasn't bothered by that. I was no. still able to fully like string along and realize that time is passing and characters are growing. And yeah, like how did you feel about that difference? I, I had the exact same thought. And it's so funny because watching the pro shot of the National Theatre production, it made me wonder that because those were added in post-production, the mm-hmm. two years later, she runs into her ex. Like it was very temporal and very descriptive, these like little, you know, pieces of text we were given. And I just assumed that those were probably projected somewhere on the stage during the dark, but because projection is often hard to make legible in a pro shot, especially if it is conveying text with information, I just assumed that adding it in post was to make it more legible to the at-home viewing audience. Mm-hmm. And maybe that was the case, maybe not, but I really loved the absence of all of that didascalia that is trying to hold the audience's hand through What's happening? When is this? Who is this person? Oh, it's her ex. It's yeah. kind of more fun and interesting and a bit of a fun little puzzle box to try to pick up the clues. It really makes you pay more attention when they say something that is some sort of signifier of time. It means more to you than, oh, yeah, that's the they're repeating the thing that was just said in this little bit of text we were given between the scenes. And it's funny, I found this less disorienting than right. the way that these scenes transitions were handled in the other version, mm-hmm. which, and I think maybe a lot of that is those, the blackouts happened a lot quicker in the National Theatre mm-hmm. version than they did here, which I think is deliberately disorienting, sometimes mid-sentence, mid-word even. It's like, okay, next scene, and we're already two years later. I'm like, yeah. okay, wow, you didn't even finish your sentence, and now we're two years later. Whereas this one, I think, rightfully added a little breath nothing was yeah. so sudden even when things are just following the text really mid-sentence or mid-word that we are moving into the next scene the actors and the lighting really just allowed like okay this scene is over moving on and it was easier i think to follow along and keep pace with what was happening even though we weren't given the con the not even context clues just the literal exposition of yeah this is the time and to add to that, I need to shout out, sorry, I was looking through my program, Keith Thomas, the composer and sound designer. So in these blackout moments, 
we were completely swept into a soundscape. And I loved that. I loved the choice of music that was sort of as like the kind of thematic score, kind of like this, how do I say it's like ethereal EDM beat. Yeah, I just, in those, because I'm someone like, if I'm going to a show and there's a blackout, I kind of want there to be a good reason as to why you're putting your audience in the dark. And so, and obviously, naturally, music usually fills those, some scenes have to switch in black, but music in the score or whatever fills that void. This, it was like another character on stage. And I think also just the, the level in which it came in and sometimes like it would like shake, like vibrate the floor. And then it would like climb, it would climax to, you know, like crescendo. And then we're in the scene. And it was like, it just was like, to me, it was like another scene partner that was like biting into you as you watched the show go and watched Yerma crumble. Like, I just thought it, it was a really good, like, to me, it conjured up like, this is potentially Yerma's lament or this is showing us John's exhaustion or the like sound of almost bottles crashing or clinkling. I was like, oh my gosh, that also could be like a baby mobile, like going around or spinning around. Like there just was so many different tendrils of tentacles, even of sound that came out of this score. So I, yeah, I loved like, thank you, Keith Thomas, for adding another character to the space yeah, via the sound. Yeah, it was all great. Yeah. No, nothing um, to add. You summed yeah. it up very well. There we go. A sound review of the sound. Mm-hmm. Okay, so speaking of characters, let's dive in to our cast. And let's obviously start us off with Sarah Gaiden as her. Ryan, I'll open the floor for you for that. Yeah, so... Obviously, yeah, her, Yerma, if you will. Yeah, Sarah is on stage almost the entire time, and this is a very emotionally demanding role. And it's such a journey because she she starts the play just very fun, plucky. She's still young. I think she's supposed to be in her early 30s, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, 33, I believe, is the first time. Or the first time we get, like, an age of her. The age of Christ. Hey, biblical imagery comes in later. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. And yeah, she's plucky. She's enthusiastic. She has a job she loves. She writes a blog. It's, and, you know, she's with the man she loves. And we don't even get this sense from her that this is, this need for a child is something that is going to consumer a whole life or that it's even such a big obsession it's just like this is the next chapter she's very much bright-eyed bushy-tailed and enthusiastic about that and then over the course of the play i think she did a very good job of ratcheting up the intensity and Mm -hmm. uh, you know bringing us to the point where yeah it we are past the spoiler (laughs) zone at this point the tree has grown oh she plants a garden in her front no she does (laughs) stab herself in the womb region and that is just a horrifying image to have to get yourself to and yeah it's difficult and it's rough and you know she's in so many very intense scenes along the way is it always perfect no i don't think so but it's you know it's messy and there's a lot there's a lot of she's bringing a lot to it and she i'm not gonna lie i'm not really familiar with her as an actor you watch her on alias grace yes uh, i saw her in alias grace maybe unpack her career a little more if you want to add that context that I have yeah. been lacking. 
So shout out to Sarah. Hey. Yeah. I watched Alias Grace throughout the pandemic and it was the first time I had seen Sarah act and I loved her in that such like a very dark visceral vibe she gave to the protagonist of that series. So I was like super, super jazzed to see her in this and completely agree with you, Ryan. Like I, this character is, how do I even like, if anyone has seen, if anyone did see Ben Troffenheit in the city a couple years back, our lead in that, the protagonist, like from like an emotional standpoint and like the fact of being on stage all the time and the physicality and the jumps of time and, you know, the, I'm going to talk about this, like the idea of fertility and being a woman and wanting a child and not wanting a child and anything to do with the female reproductive system, being a fellow like female, those are probably some of the most difficult themes to deal with in life. And then let alone have to portray on stage. It's a feat and a half. There's a lot of heaviness and a lot of like emotional baggage, but luggage that comes with this and I do agree with you Ryan like I think Sarah piecing it all together like she did a really good job of getting us to this final shocking moment of her stabbing the womb area I will say in this production I think it it just it honestly might have been the proximity where we were at and the direction I did find the final moment a bit jarring. Like it seemed a bit like, oh, okay. Like I, we knew that she was going to do that because we had just seen the national theater production, but just getting her to that, like the scene before with her and John, to me, there was just like a little bit more carnal or animalistic violent sort of conjuring that I kind of wanted both her and Darren Herbert who played our John to suss up to make that final moment. Like, I think I said this to you in the car. It's like when she stabs herself at the end, we have to know before that she is someone who could have the capacity to do that. And I think it really has to do with that final scene. Like, I think the trajectory of the character for sure can set up, but that final, there's something different about that final scene with John and her, right? It's like, it is the last nail in the coffin of their relationship but like it's like a it's a whole new level of character that I again I don't think it had anything to do with Sarah or Darren and possibly not even Diana it could have just been like the space and again the proximity it didn't get me fully to believe the final moment yeah like I won't disagree with you with that I think Mm -hmm. in the National Theater version again sorry for so many comparisons but it it felt inevitable like we, it's interesting because we, you and I, we watched that before we'd read the original Lorca version. Mm-hmm. And then we instantly wanted to read it right after. And we're like, we got to just check out what was this based on? How did it? And it was shocking to us to find out that she actually doesn't stab herself in that version. She kills her husband, Juan, yeah. which John Juan, haha. But it's, well, it's interesting because dramaturgically, it Simon Stone is doing something interesting in the writing here because this isn't necessarily a terribly well-known play, Yerma, the original, that it's not really banking it on the cachet of, like when you do an, it, one of the more well-known Ibsen plays or a Shakespeare and you do a radical adaptation of that and you're like, you know how this ends, so I'm gonna trick ya. It's more playing on the cultural cachet of 
adaptations of old plays do well, regardless of whether or not people even know the old play, just the signifier of, uh, yes, postmodernism and taking something old and making it new is mm -hmm. what he's banking on here. But he is still, I think, playing in something we, with something we could call fan service, perhaps, of... Uh, he he's playing games with the expectations of people who do know the original and do know how it ends because he's well and these are points we kind of unpacked a little bit on that previous panel but i've thought about it a little more since then mm -hmm. and noticed other things kind of this time around in this production that there's a few lines in earlier scenes of she's like i'm going to kill him so if you know yeah. the original you're like ah you are gonna i know where this is going and then in that second last scene, the penultimate scene, if you will, mm -hmm. he's about to leave and she's like, just go or I'll fucking kill you. you know, there's my one swear word for our PG-13 rating. And I actually don't even remember, does she use the F-bomb in that scene? Maybe. <laughs> but I added it because it just feels like it belongs there if, okay. <laughs> if it wasn't already. But yeah, so in that scene, you, the viewer who knows the original, will be like, oh, I know where it's going. She's going to effing kill him. Yeah. And then he walks away. Yeah. like, hmm. And then, and then the next yeah. scene. And yeah, I agree that in the National Theater version, not knowing that context and not being the fans who are served by these lines, it's just like, yep, this, how else was this going to end? Of course, this is what she does. She is broken. Mm -hmm. And I, yeah, as much as I did enjoy Sarah's performance, I don't know if that arc necessarily made it all the way there. There were a, a few <laughs> more elderly ladies sitting behind us who audibly reacted to the stabbing and not in the way that you maybe immediately hope they were just like oh oh it wasn't yeah. like a, oh no huh? it was right. just a huh. and yeah like it's definitely a surprise and i think my reason for unpacking this dramaturgical innovation here is to surprise you and specifically surprise people who do think they know what's going to happen and then to trick them in a way but for the most part it really just felt like maybe we needed more of a build in that journey yeah. and i don't know if that's an acting thing maybe it's a directing thing maybe it's just an overall orchestration composition of the piece it's hard to say and i should also maybe mention perhaps we should have stated this at the outset I we was did just to say we did attend a preview, preview. performance yeah. which i know <laughs> is not the best practice for reviewers to review previews just due to our both of our busy schedules this was the only time we could squeeze it so we weren't able to do opening night as is more proper practice we we are not theater critics we are theater enthusiasts Enthusiast, as we exactly. often say so we felt that this was all right but if we are maybe noticing things that maybe needed a little more fine-tuning then perhaps this could be an explanation for that and mm -hmm. people who do see it later in the run please get down to the comments to be like oh they totally ratcheted up that tension and it totally fits and makes perfect sense cool. and i yeah that we regret that we were not able to see those performances mm -hmm. but apologies to the whole crew and cast and team if we are seeing it a little prematurely in the process to give these proper appraisals yeah. I also just want to say before we, speaking of appraisals, move on to our other phenomenal cast members. It was knowing Sarah Gaydon's uh, plethora of film experience. This was her theatrical debut, which that is astonishing in, in, in its own sort of category of kind of stepping into this character of her and just unpacking how many layers and, and tense emotional vibes you kind of have to fuel this character with it was lovely again talking the, the proximity from what i'm hearing what we talked about like possibly proximity is was maybe faltering a bit of this ratchet attention but what i loved about is how close everyone is and in this very intimate space i we really got to see her emote and knowing that she has like such 
uh, film background, it was really lovely to kind of see her in this medium, this theater medium, but still have all of the, because it's not terribly different, but I guess it kind of is like for listeners or viewers, like to act on stage versus acting behind a camera requires different tool sets as the actor, I guess. And it was just lovely being in so such close proximity to Sarah's acting where normally, you know, you would have seen her with a lens, like you, there's no escaping her emotion in a lens because the camera is tailoring that for us. But in this close space, not only was she kind of navigating this theatrical medium, but still kind of had that filmic presence in her and how she kind of exuded the character, which was really fascinating and kind of like an interesting hybrid experience for me, I guess, because I've known her, you know, tell stories with her eyes being up close. And so to be able to still kind of see that, but then also be in a physical space and tell the story in a theatrical form is like super neat. Yeah, I would agree. And I think filmic is a good way of describing a lot of the acting we saw today, not just from her, but it had this very, you know, I think, the, like you're saying, the close quartersness of it really helped zero in on that. But it just, yeah, it's a very realistic style of acting that is more akin with how we associate film acting than theater acting. I think it definitely, perhaps this is just the lack of Britishness <laughs> creating this alienation effect, but I found the National Theater production was very much it felt heightened. It wasn't like hyper-realistic or maybe it was so hyper-realistic that it no longer felt like very uncanny valley the way they spoke, the speech patterns. And maybe if you're from the specific suburbs of London that they are, you'd be like, no, that's exactly how everyone I know talks. And, you know, what are you talking about, you silly Canadians? <laughs> maybe. But to me, at least from my Canadian vantage point, that the acting in that production felt very elevated in a way not necessarily in terms of like skill or but in just in its way that it, it's a heightened text that transcended realism in a way whereas i felt this production was very much going for the groundedness of yes this is realistic acting and we tend to associate that more with cinema than with theater today and even though a lot of theater does try to ape the cinematic acting and i think that's very much what we we're privy to here mm -hmm. speaking of Someone who does all of those things and more. We're gonna can we talk about Darren Darren A. Herbert who plays Thank our you. John? Shout out to you, holy moly! Darren's performance as John was absolutely riveting. Scene stealing in many cases. Such a grounded natural force. Like I could tell that he wasn't putting anything on. Like this was just him in the character but like not being afraid to just be him like it was like very fluid but yet like the range in which he said his lines and his physicality it was just kind of a lovely support system to like all of the work sarah was doing too like we're following hers journey and she's kind of piecing it together as well in a way and this john like john character her husband he you know he has a job that takes him out of town but he's this force that keeps coming back keeps coming back and he doesn't really waver his stance with things like he really is the support cavern 
for her. Yeah, like it conversationally and as this piece goes on, you kind of he sort of kind of crumbles and falters too, but just I just think that the work, like the physical and vocal work that Darren put into John complemented and contrasted Sarah's performance so well. And everyone, like and yeah, I just I really think because he's maybe not on stage as much as her is but john like i said he's a consistent force that comes back into the space so which kind of makes sense that the penultimate scene is between these two bodies right these two people who've been dancing around and if you think about it if the whole piece is her wanting to have a child with him you know it's classic thing like it takes two to tango like if the unborn baby the heart of this piece is supposed to be a sort of emblem of these two people it just yeah it kind of makes sense that both of these actors playing her and john have that sort of chemistry that is both chemistry and anti-chemistry at the same time which i think darren was like very played a very big role in making sure that was always the case and just like we see her's exhaustion through her like perseverating and obsessing over wanting this baby and losing part of herself and having to deal with that and mess and be messy about it. And we see John's exhaustion as kind of like this growing, like slow cooker of exhaustion where like patience, patience, patience until like it's not till the last couple of vignettes that he really starts unraveling for him and for her and so yeah i just yeah i am absolutely astonished by darren's work so kudos kudos to darren agreed he's incredible i guess i don't have a lot to add because you just (laughs) i just fangirled hard (laughs) yeah he no he was amazing yeah yeah just like some of his facial expressions were just so like yeah, it's like a strange mix of, I don't even know, stoicism is the right word, but mm-hmm. agony, those things feel counterintuitive, but they're somehow both in the same single facial expression when he does like yeah. a sharp turn at various moments. And like, I think one of my favorite moments in this entire production was, it was the scene when after he's been absent for a while after they had a big fight and he's blocked her phone number and when he finally comes back and he's drunk. And he's about to confess that he you know, had not quite a tryst, but spent the night with someone from work. He's just in the middle of telling it and just has a split second of sobbing and then regains his composure right there. And it's just like, oh, my goodness. Like, this yeah. is. Well, and, just, and yeah, please. with that, too, he was intoxicated. Right. Yeah. So, again, as like an actor watching that, I'm like, oh, my God, that's brilliant. Because, you know, you kind of have this large palette and the one beautiful thing about playing a character who's intoxicated is like you really could take their lines absolutely anywhere because a drunk person is vastly different and can be affected in certain ways so it essentially is like a playground piece but the way he used how he delivered each of those lines as the intoxicated person but also as when we're intoxicated truths reveal or like our inner drudgery is brought up to the forefront and how does that make and you're right in that brief sob moment i was like oh my gosh i like i got teary and goosebumps it's just with like this miraculous like very complex and yet at the same time compact work 
that Darren put in as the actor in this role, John. And I, I just think it was absolutely brilliant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, he's a great, definitely a big standout. If we want to shout out a few other actors, Muhammad, who played Dead, I, I thought she was really good, and I want to make sure she gets a special little shout out too. It's a small role, she's not in it a lot. She is her coworker, subordinate, she calls her boss, so I mm-hmm. guess she is a subordinate of some kind. She's in the, when she's first introduced, she's 21 years old, and that's like, a, oh, you're so young compared to our 33 year old protagonist. And, right. you know, there's a real millennial Gen Z kind of divide between them. I really liked the way she played the character in the various points along this journey, because in that opening scene, she's so like flitty, or I'm trying to even think of like the right words, but she just like has this like shock revelation, like, I think I might have had sex last night. I have no idea with who. Like, how do you know what's what are you talking about? Are you okay? <laughs> and like, but she's just like, she doesn't seem bothered by it, or not as bothered as you'd think she is. She's doing funny, darty things with her eyes, like while she's trying to think about it. And like it just brought so much levity. Not that we need the levity yet this point but then you expect this to almost be a comic relief character and the way she was playing it like from beginning to end but then in the her final appearance on stage during the whole festival sequence where they're doing this field work together and she's you know she's introduced as the child in relation to hers adult you know the subordinate to the boss but then she's the one who's being responsible at the end she's in charge she's like i've got to get you out of here drink your water and she brought the groundedness to that role so i just thought that was such an incredible journey that this actor brought us through yeah and i think while we're on on that note louise lambert who plays mary and martha burns who plays helen and then as you just said michelle muhammad playing des i i want to talk kind of about them as like a package deal like all these are all the other female bodies on stage female pillars i guess in a way for her as the piece goes on mary is her sister older sister helen is hers mother and then des is hers co-worker as ryan just said and they're all different ages they have all different life experiences and education pathways like helen is a professor mom with intimacy issues <laughs> Uh, Mary is her older sister who is quite blunt and has marriage issues of her own and is struggle struggles with her first child is kind of motherhood isn't the beautiful sort of picture that society has painted it to be for her. And then you have Des, like Ryan was saying, this like young, kind of carefree, a little bit spacey, younger generation, carefree, wild sort of foil to her but it's just it's so interesting because we're finding we're following her's journey through attempt at motherhood and in that yeah discovery of self or discovery of unself in a way and we have these other female bodies that contribute to that in some shape or form like that's this one thing i guess like speaking as a woman and this i think goes it's just a historical fact right women congregate together they've you know the dawn of time they were the gatherers the men were the hunters so like they're all sort of support supposed to be support systems for each other and you know but a lot of the times they can be our like our best friends can be our 
worst enemies. They're, you know, and especially in this journey that her goes on and this attempt of motherhood and this failure, quote unquote, that she kind of places upon herself. She's constantly having to be at the whim of all these other women in her life and give and take revolving around them. And it's hilarious. Like it's even talking from a biological cyclical point of view, like how many times have I gone home from a family reunion and found out like all of my female cousins and my aunts who are perimenopausal, we're all on our period today. Like, it's like, there's this like biological sink ship that womanhood has. And to just to go through the like grotesque and psychological trauma. And like I said, this failure that her puts on herself and then, but to constantly have to like feel that she has to prove to all these other women or feel that she's not enough like all these other women or see all of them experience motherhood or see all of them have the experience of motherhood, but not take advantage of the experience of intimacy, like with her own mother and seeing Des kind of carefree, you know, sleep around with anyone and instantly take morning after. Like she, she just, not only is she going through her own journey, but she is constantly, at least in this piece, how it's kind of strewn together is constantly being underneath the pressure of all these other women. And I just think like all of our actors on stage surrounding her, like I just said, Martha, Louise and Michelle did a really good job of playing all those sticking points for Sarah's her. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Agreed. Yeah. You've already, before we like move on, I just away from cast shout outs. You just mentioned her, but I do want to make sure we do give a special extra shout out to Martha Burns as Helen, the mother character Big Slings and Arrows fans right here. So yeah, it was just so great seeing her on stage in this piece. And compared to the actor who played Helen in, again, the National Theatre Young Vic production, who I also really liked and I gave a special shout out to in that other episode. But I found that actor, whose name escapes me right now, but she had this like very dry wit to her, but it was a very cold portrayal of this character, which makes sense dramaturgically because it fits with the fact that you never hugged your children. You always felt uncomfortable with them. You're an academic and you don't have... You have the left brain at the cost of the right brain, perhaps. But what I loved about Martha's performance is that she was fun and she wasn't cold. Like she, and it doesn't take away from the way that she struggles to relate to her children and has these intimacy issues with them. Because you can be a generally warm person and still struggle with those things and you can have a good sense of humor. And I just thought, you know, it wasn't her humor never felt like I am funny because I am so awkward. It was, Mm -hmm. I'm just a funny person, but I also don't have the best relationship with my children. And those two things can coexist. And I just loved seeing this performance. I thought she did an excellent job. Yeah. And on that cast shout out too, I do want to shout out Jonathan Souza, who Mm -hmm. played our Victor. We have seen that Jonathan has been in many productions that we've reviewed here on The Cup. Cassio and Othello. We didn't review this on The Cup, but I did see his portrayal of Valer in Tartuffe at Mm -hmm. Cannes stage too. So Jonathan has been on our mind and on our stage. And I loved his take on Victor of how he was kind of a bit nerdier than the other Victor comparing to the National Theatre one who had kind of a bit of a sexual gravitas to him right out off the out the gate and Jonathan had like this kind of like nerdy enticeability about him that again I think was a wonderful foil to Darren's John in this production and it also again these are the two men like Victor is hers 
X. So it also gives us a wonderful opposition of suitors that her has had as well. Like it's so interesting to me. And I feel like every production would have Victor and John played so differently because I think it adds to what I'm about to say of like, it's so great to see these two men that are, have been a part of her's life are very different and they offer her something very different at different times of her life too. I think it just adds again to the complexity of both their characters and her, like to the character of her. Yeah, um, agreed. it would be boring if she just had a type and all of the yeah. men she dates are exactly the same as each other, because then it just they become interchangeable. And it's like, which, you know, there's an argument to be made that when she decides later in the play that this isn't working with John, obviously, I need to go back to Victor because I worked with him once before. Yeah, that I feel like you could make the argument that this interchangeability is part of her psyche. But I think it packs more of an emotional gut punch of like, these are very different people with their own inner complex lives. And you can't just swap them out for each other. And you can Mm -hmm. be attracted to both of them for very different reasons. But yeah, it's not as simple as just you man with sperm come over here. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. exactly. And I think it coats, it allows us as the audience, like we see her at the age of 33, but we hear that she had a very kind of like wild self-discovery liberating 20s. Like her Mm -hmm. 20s were a very like independent, liberated woman doing her own thing, living out like, you know, partying, doing what you want kind of vibes. And we hear that through the text, but we don't get to necessarily see that. I think maybe a flash forward of what that could be is the festival scene right it's like maybe that is a dose of what elements of what the old Yerma was kind of like in her like peak party days but aside from that we don't get to see her younger so it's really lovely to see like like I said like her mother her sister Victor like people who have been on this life journey with her or who have been parts of her past kind of give us inklings into what's going on in here right like where her has come and where she is going as the piece goes on mm-hmm. yeah speaking of peace goes on i feel like we can talk on and on and on about this show but aside from pretty much a lot of spoilers we've already given you all i feel like we should maybe wrap up soon yeah. ryan do you have any last minute things you want to throw throw no, at us like I- Again, we could go deeper into the dramaturgy. I know you and I have talked about it off camera because you weren't on that previous episode. You didn't necessarily Mm -hmm. get to share your thoughts. Is there anything in that realm that you would like to address, even if it was already covered in the previous episode, if you have thoughts about? We could, yeah. I think just, it's interesting because when we watch the National Theatre production and when we watch this one too, like the form of this piece being like filmic, vignettes and then I think it took me being in the space seeing this piece where quite literally we were like a flash of light brings you into the next scene and I guess dramaturgically the form of this piece I'm always it I always come back to thinking about it and I look forward to kind of having this coal mines production sink in and conjure up those thoughts just like the National Theatre one did because I also think that it bleeds no pun intended, really well into, again, going back to like 
being a woman and having a reproductive system and having a society that kind of there's a biological clock and like, are you going to be a mother? Are you going to get married? Like I realized, you know, we're doing this review in 2023, but like that's still very common across a lot of cultures, a lot of countries, a lot of personal choice. But there's a lot of pressure that comes with being a woman and a mother and becoming a mother or, and a really good friend of ours, she's from the States. I won't say her name just for confidentiality if need be, but she, she brought up in a play reading, Ryan and I were just part of the idea that like a lot of the times, and this is still the case when, when a woman becomes a mother, then that's kind of, that becomes their identity now. They are known as mother. They are this vessel that holds a child and your duty is to now rear this child. And so the identity of what the woman was before kind of gets enveloped by this child. And in this piece, we don't see her become that, but we see her like itching to want to change to that so much. And so I think just in a roundabout, balled up way, I just think the form of this piece being this these quick vignette scenes that don't get to finish and there's giant leaps of time, but yet there's still that biological clock ticking and you kind of are thrown in, thrown out. Like, it's really tough being a woman. I, I Again, I think the fact that I'm not able to fully form my words around this, I just, it was this flash of, and this doesn't necessarily even mean, you know, being a woman and how your life changed in that, just bleeding, menstruating, like the cycle every single month, right? Hormones, like <laughs> we're getting into it, but it feels, it can feel like, like so many different things. I just think this for, the form of this piece does a really good job of jostling you around, jolting you around. There is no clear linear plot to womanhood. It is messy. It is choppy. It happens all at once. It happens over a long period of time. It can be flashes of light and it can be utter darkness. And I just think, yeah, that comes from the form. And then both this production and the National Theater one, we watched the the light and the sound, the sort of blackness and this sort of like humming of some sort of soundscape, I think really does fuel all of what I'm saying too, like, which again, that I guess is all I'll add because there's a lot more we could like, I guess get into, but I don't even think it needs, it needs to. Yeah. Play does a great job of cutting to the core, literally in some senses of all of these things. And yeah, you know, so we encourage people go check it out, see this production at the new yes. Coal Mine Theater. You want to reiterate the dates and whatnot? Yes, I do. So definitely check it out. Again, this is the Canadian premiere of Yerma by Simon Stone after Federico Garcia Lorca is happening at the Coal Mine Theater at their new location, which is 2076 Danforth Avenue, corner of Danforth and Woodbine. You can access it right across the street from the Woodbine subway station if you'd like. And it is happening now until March 5th. They have extended the run thus far to March 5th. So grab your tickets and experience the wonderful piece that Ryan and I just chatted about and experienced ourselves. And on that note, stay safe, stay healthy, 
and stay happy. We are still kind of in the darker months of the year, especially up here in Canada. It is cold. It is sort of dingy out there some days. So do what makes you happy. Dance, sing, play video games, read, drink lovely drinks. And cheers, friends, when you can. So on that note, oh, wait, before we leave. I did promise that you would get to plug your the show you're in right now. Do you want to do that before we? <laughs> First <laughs> of all, I, just... should, I should plug our channel. Well, so, yeah. yes, I guess I'll let you do that. Ryan, all why right. don't you give us Yeah, I, I'm not very active on social media. So anyone who likes me, just follow the cup. Hey, that's the show you're watching right now. Cup of Hemlock Theater. We're a podcast. We're a YouTube channel. We're all the things. Yeah. At COH Theater on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. If you're watching this on YouTube, like, share, subscribe. If you're watching this as a podcast, you watched it with your ears. Do all the same things. How about you, Jill? Where can people find and follow you and see you on stage in Toronto right now? Yes. To pick up, you know, if you want to put yourself in a theater to make your vibe feel better on a February dingy Toronto, come and see me on stage. When by the time this episode goes out, we will be in our final weekend of the Women at Plays Festival, which is happening in Red Sand Castle Theatre, also in Leslieville. It is happening on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. There's 7.30 p.m. evening shows. And on the weekend, there are 1.30 p.m. matinees. I'm in a production of Missing You. It is a one-act show that is going to be showcased in this festival alongside five other one-act shows. So our show is called Missing You. I'm playing Officer Dunn. I am a police officer and I have a conversation with the protagonist. And that's as spoilery as I'm going to get. You have to get yourselves out there to the cozy Red Sandcastle Theater if you want to see how that story goes. I'm also really excited to just be doing new works in the city by local playwrights and be surrounded by phenomenal actors and other women that are in our city right now as well. So that's happening. Also, follow my artist Instagram page, Jillian.Robinson96, if you want to keep up. I have some other projects cooking for the year of 2023 coming down the lane. So keep your eyes peeled for announcements regarding that. Super cool thing. I booked my first short film. So that's going to be lovely. I'm going to be filming that going to be on set for that at the end of the month. That was huge for me because like I said, theater medium, film medium, very different in my brain, but I'm trying to kind of sew the two together. So when I booked this short film, it was a lovely moment for me. So enough about me. And I've already given a wonderful send off. So follow the cup, follow us where you follow us. And we look forward to having more conversations down the line. Cheers.